Is there some day in history when you really wish you were there? You know, I thought of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, the raising of the pyramids in Egypt. That would have been really amazing to watch. And then I thought, you know, on the other side, the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> but maybe, you know, invisibly on, on the deck of another ship. <laughs> and maybe not that kind of history at all. Maybe we don't want to see that. I got to watch. I can still remember it. I was uh, 14, I think. 69, that sounds about right. And I was in a trailer park and one of the other people in there, we were on our way down to my brother's funeral. Or funeral. <laughs> wedding. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've been to his funeral too, so that counts. And this guy pulls out this nine-inch black and white TV, literally this big, and there was like 20-some of us all around watching this thing, watching uh, Neil Armstrong take the first step on the moon. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Except for getting married to my kids. That's pretty far up there. Wow, I would love to have been there. I mean, on the moon. I used to tell my kids, by the time I die, I expect to stand on the moon and look back this way. And that's... I was just one of the greatest things in the world to me. And then in this like wonderful twist of fate, you know, Christians, we call that the providential work of God. <laughs> but when I went to seminary, I actually got to meet and become friends with John Tanner. Dr. John Tanner had his doctorate in engineering and he was working towards a doctorate in theology. And it was so fun to talk to him because I got to put a person... A real person who was really there working on the Apollo program, I got to sit and talk with him and talk about what it was like and, and what they felt when they first saw that. And he was in the control room when they first saw Neil Armstrong walking. Wow! You know, that's so amazing. It was just great. And we graduated together, so I got to talk to him quite a bit. He's invited us to their home in Hawaii. <laughs> I hope to take him up on that offer. Anyway, knowing people that are involved like in that Apollo project thing, it brings it to life. It, it just, well, maybe just my mind. But these great moments in history. So do you wish you could have been at the greatest moment of history? There's one moment of history that's the greatest. Did you ever wish you could have been in Jerusalem at the very moment when Jesus rose from the dead? Maybe even inside the burial cave? You know, where they had laid Jesus, sort of like that ship other than the Titanic was sitting in. What was it like? I always wondered, was there a brilliant flash of light when he came back to life? I, I don't know. Was there like some great noise and did a million angels sing? I don't know. But a big question is, would Jesus have looked at you and smiled? Wow. That'd be exciting. And then how about a little later when Mary Magdalene heard him call her name? To be there. To be there. Would you like to have heard him call your name? Or later that evening when the disciples, you know, they're frightened. They're, they're behind closed doors. Suddenly, with joy, they discover that they could reach out and touch Jesus. And then a week later, when Thomas cried out as he fell at the feet of the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. Wouldn't you love to have heard that? I don't know, what, what wouldn't we give to have been one of the 500 who saw, over the next month, they got to see Jesus alive with power 
after he was crucified, after he was pierced. I think we would all like to have been there for that exciting, glorious moment. But why that time and that place? Well, come on, are you kidding me? <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. That's what made it a history worth worthy of knowing. Because it's all about who was there. Jesus. Risen from the grave, yes, but Jesus. So you see, the, the real question is, wouldn't you like to see Jesus? Fully God and yet fully human. Fully God and yet fully human. I've heard that a million times. What does it mean? How is Jesus fully God and yet fully human? About 500 years before these events that we would have liked to have seen, uh, God said the most amazing thing through the prophet Isaiah. Or to the prophet. Zechariah, I'm sorry. Uh, Zechariah said, wrote down what God told him, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn over for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Let it go the way <laughs> I think Zechariah thought it was going to go. God is talking... And he says, they'll look at me whom they have pierced. They'll look at God whom they have pierced and they'll mourn over him. Well, how do you pierce God? You know, the nature, what about the nature of God? God is spirit. Whatever nature spirit is, whatever substance spirit is, it's not material, it's not physical. You can't see spirit or touch spirit or in any way use our five senses to perceive spirit. So how do you pierce God? And God is also infinite. In particular, for this discussion, infinite in location. God is fully present in all locations at all times. So we could say that you pierce God anytime you pierce anyone. But it's clearly obvious that that's, that's, not, that's not what's meant here. And, and, but let's go ahead and muddy the waters a little bit more. <laughs> God is also three persons. As to nature, God is one. As to persons, he's three. So how does that work? And remember, all three persons all have the same nature, one of spirit. They share that one nature. So we're still in the same spot. How do you pierce spirit? And you know, wait a minute, couldn't he mean, oh, you pierced me to the heart? I mean, is this just a metaphor? And I suppose it is possible, but it doesn't sound like some kind of figure of speech. And remember, they looked at him. And humans can't see spirit. Plus, the people around him, when he is pierced, mourn. And not in a way that they would if it was just a metaphor. So why would they mourn like this if it wasn't about really piercing him with a spear? You can't pierce a spirit in reality. So how do you pierce God? Well, no human would have ever thought of this. <laughs> uh, not even an angel. That there is a way that you could pierce God. If one of the persons of the Trinity also took on a material, a physical nature, if that person 
became also a human being, took on a limited physical nature, limited in time, limited in space, only one location at a time, and limited in power, and okay, limited in a lot of other ways too. If the person of the Son, while remaining God in nature, also became human in nature, he could be pierced. In a very real sense, God could be pierced. And that, of course, is the wonder and the amazement of the greatest story ever told. The person of the Son put on human nature. But how else could we say this? You know, the human Jesus was personified by God the Son. None really sound right. His personality was that of the Son. Eh, no. We're just going to have to go with this. He was the person of the Son who took on human nature, body and soul, and yet remained himself, God the Son. So you have two natures with one person. One person has two natures that he simultaneously lives. And so God was pierced. And then, let's bend our minds a little bit more. The soldier pierced Jesus to prove a point that Jesus was dead. Stabbed him by the heart, blood and water came out. The blood was coagulated. The man was dead. Okay, that's why he stabbed him. But death is separation of the body and spirit when you're talking humans. In fact, the word death itself is just a metaphor for the separation of the spirit and the body. If God the Son was truly human, then he must have had a human soul, which was separated from his human body. So, in that sense, the Son, for that brief moment, no longer had a full human nature. <laughs> but, of course, that's the excitement of Easter. He didn't stay dead. The person of the Son, in his human nature, came back alive. And, well, yeah, he's the person of the Son. It's not like he could stay dead. And maybe you're not entirely convinced. Because some people think that Jesus could not come back as a human. He has to have been something else. Maybe just the appearance of being human. So why do they say that? Because they think there's something inherently wrong with being human. Having a material nature is wrong somehow. And he's God. So his also being a human is somehow wrong. I mean, it was all right for a while so he could save us, but really you have to end this foolishness. Well, no. There is nothing wrong in and of itself with being human. Nothing. Jesus was the perfect man and nothing, absolutely nothing was wrong with that. Being human is perfectly fine. So Jesus could rise from the dead as a human being. And if you're still not sure, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples that first evening after he was raised. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Okay, so in his own words, we see that Jesus came back in his human nature. But why? Of course, the reason is, of course, to save us. You see, I, I said there's nothing inherently wrong with being human, and that's true. 
as long as that human is Jesus. <laughs> he was and is perfect. Never did anything wrong. Never sinned, ever. Of course, there's something wrong with us as humans, with every human who ever lived except Jesus. We, unlike Him, are inherently sinful. Uh, we naturally do evil. And there's no way we can stand before a perfect, pure God on our own. The disciples understood that in in their own sinfulness. So, before it actually happened, Jesus explained it to him. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And this is explained more fully all through the Bible, but the short version is that we can be made perfect as he is perfect because he took our imperfections, our sins, on himself and died for them in our place and then puts his perfection, his righteousness, on us. So we get to be perfect as Jesus was perfect because we have a relationship with him. And if we have a relationship with him, then we have a relationship with and to the Father. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Paul was writing to a group of men trying to explain to them what Jesus rising from the dead meant. We get to be made perfect like Jesus, conformed to the image of his Son. And therefore, we'll also have a relationship with God our Father that is perfect. And I don't misunderstand, we're not Jesus. <laughs> he is naturally perfect. We have to be made perfect. Jesus is the firstborn among many. But in John's record of the resurrection, chapter 20, we find that Mary calls him Lord. Then the ten call him Lord. Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And John writes that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, Jesus condescends to call them my brothers. He directed Mary to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is saying that in some way, his relationship with the Father in his human form will be mirrored in them. And by extension, in us. And there's even more. John wrote later in a letter, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, body and spirit. One day our physical bodies as well as our human spirits will be made perfect in him. Like him. And we will see him. The thing we most wanted to experience, we will. <laughs> we will see the risen Christ. Now that's a moment in history we won't want to miss. And I hope none of us does. What Jesus has done for us will allow us to be with him. There's a story about Albert Einstein, which I, I probably don't have it exactly right, but it goes something like this. It's a true story. He was attending some talk on a certain aspect of physics or something, and seated next to him was a female scientist that he knew. And they, you know, they 
exchange a few pleasantries before the speech began. And then they had to endure <laughs> a protracted, monotone dirge of a presentation. It was horrible. Until finally, Einstein leaned over and whispered to the lady next to him, now I shall have to go home and tell my wife that I have slept with another woman. <laughs> and he could, he was, he was quite a card. He used to say stuff like that all the time. But he was really serious when he said that the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, is the most important truth in understanding the nature of the universe. Now, in the event you don't love physics like I do, Entropy is the understanding that everything is winding down. Everything is winding down. It's getting cold. It's dying. Everything. The whole universe, if nothing happens in between, will grind to a complete halt. Everything. There will be no more potential energy of any kind. So this world, all scientists understand, is nature. Einstein made sure you understood. It's dying. Okay, and all of us in it. There is no eternal future for this universe. None. Zero. Zip. Not a chance. We need a new nature. <laughs> and of course, you might celebrate when you hear that John also wrote concerning the end of all things this very good news. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So entropy, I believe, we can understand will be dead. <laughs> A new nature. And the sea is probably a metaphor for the separation of the physical and spiritual. Uh, somehow those two will be drawn together in this new nature. And when this is done, we'll hear with John something even more glorious. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Remember how we wondered what it must have been like for Mary to hear Jesus call her name? One day, if you're his, you will hear him call your name, specifically. And you will be given a new nature. And we will be with him. We will be able to touch him. And when he smiles, we'll smile back. Because he will wipe away every tear. We'll finally be able to live a life like Jesus, our firstborn brother, lives. And that's what Easter was all about that we just celebrated. But that day's not here yet. <sighs> Jesus knows we still have the tears, we still have the sin. But that first Easter really happened. We are owners of that life like Jesus already lives, even though we don't have possession of it yet. And we need to remember that. It's good to remind ourselves of Jesus' resurrection on a regular basis. Of course, once a year, every Easter. And then again, we actually do it every week. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Jews worship God on the last day of the week, the Sabbath. But when they became Christians, they added and then later switched to Sunday. Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It's wonderful. The three days before he rose from the dead, Jesus gave his disciples another way to remember his death and resurrection. And once a month, on the first Sunday of the month, we at this church celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you remember that Jesus showed him his hands and feet? And of course he wanted to show them that it was 
really him in, in his human body. But there are plenty of ways to do that. Why show them the scars? And actually, why did he keep the scars? All the other wounds that he sustained, internal, remember, stabbed through the heart, external, they were all healed. Why, why not these scars? Well, I believe he kept them for us to see. A reminder that we can see and touch. That he gave himself for us and he will always be with us. The Bible isn't absolutely clear in this, but I believe that throughout eternity we'll be able to see and touch those scars. I do. The one we remember every Easter, every Sunday, and every time we take communion. But before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I'd like to take a few minutes to go into a little more depth than we usually do. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This part, uh, you're very well aware of if you've come here for very long. What you might not be aware of is that the church in Corinth was uh, not doing good. And, and that's correct English. <laughs> they were doing bad, wrong things. Jesus, three days before he rose from the dead, celebrated an entire meal with his disciples and his, his friends, his brothers. And the early church ate an entire meal together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But because of what Paul wrote before we just what we just read, we now use just the two symbols he mentioned, unleavened bread, unleavened wine. Now, we'd better read what he wrote before that because, well, just listen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Ouch! <laughs> Apparently, they were bringing their own meals, not sharing, not politely waiting for one another, some of them drinking leavened, fermented wine to the point that they were getting drunk in a church service. You know, no wonder Paul got angry. No wonder he berated them. And it's no wonder that the church changed to celebrating a Lord's Supper with those two emblems, and that's been it from that time. And, and there's this other instruction that followed both these that we rarely consider, but it is important. And please, listen carefully. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have 
died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow, did that make you sit up and take notice? (laughs) It should have. Especially paired with the warnings. You eat and drink judgment on yourself. You could become weak or ill. You could die. Okay, breathe, breathe. First, this is about believers. That's why he says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God may take some believing people out of this world rather than let them ruin the church. He may make some weak or sick believers. When you mistreat the firstborn from the dead by not examining yourself before partaking in communion, you do not proclaim the Lord's death properly. The very thing we were to do until he comes again. This is not about non-believers taking communion. It means nothing when they do. It's just a cracker and grape juice. That's it. This is about believers who refuse to examine their own lives. Because He loves you, God will discipline you, even to the point of ending your life on this earth. And wouldn't it? That'd be kind of terrible. It would seem like it would be terribly embarrassing. Show up in heaven at heaven's door, and the first thing you're aware of is that you're there because, well, as my dad used to say, you were such an orangutan. <laughs> Wouldn't that be embarrassing? <laughs> You'd be in heaven, though. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If we examine ourselves and turn our lives around like Jesus, our firstborn brother, then we won't have to be disciplined by God. And don't misunderstand. Not everyone who is going through troubles is in the middle of some great sin or something like that. I mean, remember Job. But if your life is in a shambles, examine yourself. And actually, what are we saying? Do that before God takes you to the woodshed. In fact, we can do it right now. Becky, will you, will you just hand out the emblems? There's so few of us. And while, while you're waiting, hold on to these emblems. We'll take communion together with us. But while we're doing that, examine your own life. I mean, quietly, between you and God, just you and God, lay your soul out to Him. I mean, as you contemplate these symbols, the body and blood of Christ, you don't need to skip communion ever just because there's sin in your life. You need to ask Him first to forgive you for your sin and two, help you overcome that sin. And what about those who don't believe at all? You know, we'll just go through that. What if communion means nothing but a cracker and grape juice to a person? This is it. This is the, this is the suggestion. Just between that person and God, say, look God, I don't think you're there. (laughs) I don't know if you're there. But somehow, if you truly are real, if your son really took on a human nature, died and rose from the dead for me, then make yourself real to me. Jesus made the promise. If you seek, you will find. Don't know if it would be today. Don't know if it would be right when you tell somebody that. But if a person desires the truth, if that truth, desire for truth burns in their heart, they will find truth. 
And then each time they share the Lord's Supper with us, from then on, they'll be able to celebrate with all us poor sinners who are now, like them, saved by grace. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body. When you do this, remember me. He said, Remember me till I come. This is my blood. Whenever you drink this, whenever we do this together, remember Jesus died rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is coming back for us. Thank you for this great gift, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. History. The greatest moment of history. In in fact, the center of history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's really not 2000 A.D. now. (laughs) 2000 AD is from 2000 years after the birth after the resurrection of Christ. And one day there will actually be an end to history. I don't know if you knew that. Would you like to hear it? It comes in the middle of a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church that was doing well, not like the Corinthian church, and he wanted to encourage them. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, dead that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We believe, all churches who are dispensational, there are a great number of them, we believe that Jesus will come back in the clouds to collect all those who believe. Then there will be a great tribulation. Then he will come back to this earth. And he will reign for a thousand years and us with him, by the way. Very exciting stuff. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's great to learn from history. Good idea, too. But it's much more exciting to, to know the hope of the future. We will see our firstborn brother. <laughs> we will touch him. Our living hope where the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that we can encourage one another. Every time we get beat up, every time something happens, every time we just wonder, we can look at each other and say, wait a minute, there's a day coming. Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds and we get to go up and meet Him there. Wow. We get to spend seven years at a party with Him just celebrating the fact that He came back from the dead and now He gave us His perfection. He took away all our sin and gave us His perfection. Ah, we get His life 
the real life that he lives. How, how exciting can that get? Help us to remember to encourage one another in this way as we, as we go through life. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.